boom, just like that, the show starts. Wonderful. You like that? I it do. Just, that's how we just dive in. <laughs> we just dive in. Exactly. Right? Yeah. It's good to meet you, George. It's great to meet you. What I've heard a lot about you, actually. Oh. From, from our mutual friend, yes. which I'm not even going to name him because <laughs> he doesn't deserve mention. That is true. I don't even know if you know all the history of, of me and him. He's been stringing me along now for two weeks over a watch. Actually, he did uh, tell me about the watch, and he was telling me. Did he show to, you the uh, watch? No, but he told me to tease you about that and ask you what time it was. And like that. <laughs> bastard. Yeah. What a bastard. Waiting on this watch. He, his, his buddy comes in here last week. He shows me this amazing watch. He's like, I can get you one. I'm like, I want one. I'll even pay. I want one. And no watch. Not yet. Then yesterday he sends me photos of 12 other watches, none of which are the watch. The one that you want. Correct. Yes. But Billy has it. He doesn't even deserve it. I know. He should give it to you. Yeah. And now I said his name. I didn't mean to. It's all right. I was heated. Uh, so FBI. Yes. Retired. Yes. How long have you been retired? So I retired uh, June 30th of last year. Oh, wow. Okay. After how many years? 24. Really? Yes. Well, you must have some stories that you just can't talk about. <laughs> <laughs> I was very fortunate. I had a very uh, uh, incredible career. Yeah? yeah? Very blessed in that regard. Fun? Amazingly fun. Really? Yes. Stressful? Very. Which is more? Fun or equal or? That's so, part, is that part of the? So like gambling. I, I kind of equate it to gambling, right? Billy's a gambler. I'm a gambler. We're action junkies here. Uh, there's a sick, twisted thing that happens when you're a gambler where losing is almost as much fun as winning the, while it's happening. Not the final result is never... When you leave losing, that's no fun. But the, the grinding to get back to even and then hopefully up, that dance is, is magical for some reason for some of us degenerates. Is it like that? Well, uh, no, I would say it's a little different. So early on in my career, it was really fun, very exciting, uh, it was. It seemed like a one big adventure. Uh, of course, as I began to promote within the organization and started to take leadership roles, it became more stressful. I don't want to say less fun, but the you know the action and the adventure started to become less and less. And, right. You know, at at the end, it was it was really very stressful. How much of the job is paperwork? Well, actually, most of the job is really? paperwork, especially for the uh, uh, line special agents, because everything we do, it has to be documented. And if it's not on paper, it never happened. It doesn't exist. Wow. So we could do something for an hour, and then it's about six hours worth of paperwork. Wow. That's crazy. And how many times uh, did you have to pull your gun? Yes. Really? Yes. Did you have to fire it ever? Yes. Really? Yes. Multiple times? Well, I, I've served uh, multiple tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. Prior to the FBI? No, in the FBI. Oh, in the FBI. Yes. Oh, wow. So I don't... Yeah. So there's so many things I think we just, as civilians, we don't even realize happens, right? Like I wouldn't think the FBI is... I thought that was just military would be in... Iraq. It doesn't work that way. No, absolutely. No, the FBI is all over the world. It's a global organization. And especially after 9-11, we recognize that for us to really protect the United States, which is the core mission of the FBI, it's to 
uh, protect the United States and uphold the Constitution, we have to go where the threat is and prevent that threat from coming to our shores or coming to the United States. So after 9-11, we really focused on going to where the terrorists were, for example, in Iraq and Afghanistan, and try to really prevent the, the terrorists from coming to the United States. Wow. So when you guys, uh, when you're in Iraq, are you dressed as like, mil do you look more like military or like, are you in? No, absolutely. And especially in, in my first tour. So I was in Iraq at the end of March of 2003. So shortly after Baghdad oh, fell. Oh, wow. Okay. And I was there through July of 03. And during that time, I was not only supporting uh, FBI operations, but we were also supporting uh, the U.S. military. Again, we are part of the intelligence community, and we do function as you know one, one team, in a sense. So we would go out with our military count counterparts, helping them. So, for example, I would go out and assist uh, our military personnel in finding high-value targets, as they were called. You know, those guys that were on the deck of cards that were really wanted at the yep. you know at the beginning of the war. Yeah, I uh, spoke Arabic, so there was a high demand for Arabic speakers. So, of course, we would we would be dressed like the uh, military. One, so that our counterparts, the other U.S. military personnel would recognize us as friendly right. and not not turn on us or right. you know, accidentally, uh, you know, misidentify us and fire on us. And then also for the, you know, for the bad guys to identify us as uh, as uh, uh, as U.S. So, you know, most of the time we would wear, uh, you know, very similar uniforms to our uh, 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 military counterparts. Wow. And so while you were there, you ended up in like some some gunfights like so un unfortunately, you know, when you're in those uh, situations, you end up getting uh, uh, ambushed, or you, you know, you you end up, uh, you know, having to, uh, you know, survive, uh, you know, terrible uh, events. And uh, and how do you of... how do you stay calm, or do you calm? Are, are you calm in those situations, or is it is your? I mean, imagine your adrenaline is just through the you know, roof, right? During uh, during those situations, of course, you know, your training takes over, and then you're so focused on not only uh, you know y yourself, but your teammates, your your uh, uh, the folks that you're there with, you know that becomes so overwhelming. You know, protecting each other and things like that. Uh, it doesn't really hit until everything is done, and either you're back at the base or somewhere, and then you know, then you get right. the uh, you know the the dump, and then you know the, then the the reality of what the holy shit, through. what just happened? Yes, uh, yeah, hits you. Wow, do you have nightmares ever? No, no, no. So none of that. No, I'm fortunate. I, you know, I, uh, none of the things that I've been involved in has really had a, any type of, uh, you know, long term. That's effect. amazing. Yeah. Wow. And um, that, I'm fascinated by this. Uh, when you watch, like, I'm, you know, constantly on Netflix watching these kind of shows, whatever. If you see shows that involve those type of circumstances, do you laugh at these shows? Like, is it just so silly? Like. The stuff that we think is feels real, like like a show like Twenty Four. Did you ever watch like Twenty Four? No. no. Do you even watch? You can't even watch that it's stuff, not right? That I can't watch it. It just you know, uh, for me, it's just not not a, that appealing, right? You know, so I'd rather. Like, I lived it. I don't need to <laughs> watch you guys yeah. try to recreate. So you know, I prefer different types of uh, shows. Uh, you know, comedies. Yeah. And, you know, things light, like that. lighthearted. Yeah. So, but you know, I really wasn't a big fan of Twenty Four or Homeland or any of those kinds of shows. I didn't really 
uh, watch those. But, you know, I, I do watch movies and I do like, uh, you know, action movies. It, you know, I'm able to separate myself and just enjoy the movie for its uh, entertainment, entertainment value. value. Yeah. Exactly. Wow. And uh, do you have, um, do you still have a lot of friends that are in, I would imagine? Oh, I, tons, right? I, well, I wouldn't say tons because, you know, we... We come on at a particular time, and we tend to retire about the same time. So it's it's generational, right? So all okay. of the, all the folks that I got hired in or joined the FBI in, you know, our our time has come, and uh, a lot of my counterparts or colleagues have uh, have retired. We have a mandatory retirement age in the FBI for special agents. So. Uh, oh really? Fifty-seven. You, you have to retire at. Wait, 57. you're fifty-seven. I'm not fifty-seven. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm fifty-five. Are you really? Yeah, I'm fifty-five. Wow. Okay. So you're you can retire at fifty, but you have to retire at fifty-seven. So, folks between fifty and fifty-seven, you know, start retiring depending what their you know post bureau uh, goals are or uh, aspirations, and uh, you know, so a lot of my uh, generation uh, has already retired or is near retirement. We were talking about this the other day when, when he said you were going to come on. Um, so this is going to be a dumb question. Uh, so you got like FBI, CIA, Secret Service. Uh, who ranks higher? Is there a higher ranking or what? Well, uh, so Probably uh, depends who you're talking to from exactly, which branch. Exactly. Right? I was going to okay. say. So uh, <laughs> responsibility, authority, there isn't a higher ranking. Okay. Of course, you know, we in the FBI, we think we're the premier agency in the world. And, you know, I would say, you know, we are recognized uh, globally as, as, you know, one of the best, if not the best law enforcement agency uh, in the world. But in regards to who has higher authority or responsibility within the United States, there isn't that, you know, that structure. We all have different roles and responsibilities. You know, some of them overlap and they complement each other with the, you know, ultimate goal of, of protecting the United States and really serving the American people. Well, and when you fly, are you, do you carry or you, you're allowed to carry, right? When you're an FBI agent, you're required to carry. Required to. What about when you're retired? When you're retired, that is the one thing you lose is you can't carry on the, on the plane anymore. Really? Yeah. But anywhere else, obviously. Yes. Like if you go to into like a, if you go to a Dodger game, you can carry in there. Yeah. Yes. And do you still, or should I not ask you that? Or uh, you know, it, it, it depends. Uh, you know, I I realize you know uh, depending on the on the uh, on the event and the situation and and things like that. You know, now I you know I I try to avoid those kinds of uh, uh, situations. You know, because. One, you have to know, you know, uh, inform the the law enforcement and security there. There are yep. all of these procedures, and and then you, of course, uh, I don't drink, but uh, you know, of course, when you're armed, you should never drink and right. you know, those kinds of things. So, you know, a lot of factors go into the, you know, to that decision. Um, but uh, you know, so for the most part, depending on on the venue and and where I'm going and and things like that, you know, now now that I'm retired, I don't have to necessarily carry all the time but there's a guy that does his podcast here at the studio his name's david colmeyer and he's a retired uh, new york cop and then henderson cop here in, in vegas and uh he doesn't carry since he's retired and i find it fascinating that uh that he doesn't like i, I don't know like i would just think you've spent so many years and you've seen so much yeah. evil that it would be automatic carry 
Yes. You know, for me, I spent 34 years in law enforcement. So before joining the Bureau, I was a police officer for 10 years in Northern California. So I've carried a weapon, you know, 34 years of, uh, you know, my adult life. So I do carry 99% of the time. Uh, Again, when I go to an event, especially, you know, like a concert or a game, I, you know, I look at the security and then the, you know, the, the challenges that, you know, that it creates and then we'll make that determine, mm. determination. But if you're asking me, do I carry day in and day out? Yes, I still carry. <laughs> when you were flying, when you were an agent and you were on like a commercial flight, did you ever have any situations where you had to step in and get involved in something? And no, not necessarily uh, step in and, and get involved. You know, I've had... Uh, uh, the pilot move move my seat and put oh. me next to someone that they were concerned about. Really, and asked me to kind of you know pay attention. And of course, it turned out that person was uh, you know was not a uh, an issue or a threat or anything like that. You know, but if this was you know post nine eleven and you know there were a lot of stereotypes. I will tell you the funniest story uh, flying. So right after nine eleven. I was in the Phoenix field office at the time, and we had arrested uh, one of the hijackers, uh, former roommates, and who had done flight training with one of the hijackers. Hmm. And they wanted him in New York to appear in front of the grand jury and to provide testimony as it relates to the 9-11 attacks. So my partner and I uh, uh, transported him from Phoenix to, to New York. Uh, on a commercial flight, so we were we were transporting him and ended up uh, spending a couple of weeks in New York, uh, trying to uh, get him to testify in front of the grand jury and everything like that. And then we were uh, going to bring him back. Well, my partner flew back early, so it was just me, uh, and and uh, I'll call him the bad guy because you know he was uh, uh-huh. <laughs> he was a bad guy. <laughs> Uh, you know, of course, he was, uh, you know, uh, Middle Eastern. And then so I asked uh, our New York office to get, uh, to assign a, a second agent to help me transport him back because we always transport, you know, two agents uh, with a uh, with a prisoner. And uh, I'm, of course, of uh, uh, Middle Eastern descent. Uh, I was born and raised in Beirut, Lebanon. And they gave me a Greek uh, agent or a, uh-huh. an agent uh, of a, a Greek descent who looks Arab. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so we get to the airport. We introduce ourselves to the crew, to the pilot, and the, of course the the pilot wants us to pre-board. And normally we sit in the last row of the aircraft, the last last row. And then that's we, like kind of standard. Yeah, so you can and see everyone. Not only that, we can separate ourselves from the rest of the passengers and things like that. And this is shortly after 9/11, so the flights weren't all that full. We could have had a lot of space, but the pack, uh, the pilot, this was his first flight after 9-11, and he's like, no, no, no. I, I want you close. <laughs> yes, I want you in the first row of coach, because he didn't want to put the bad guy in, in, in first class. So he's like, first row of coach. And, you know, so I tried to tell him, hey, you know, from a procedure, safety, everything, it's better if we're in the, you know, the last row, we have separation and all that. And he said, no. <laughs> you know, and at the end of the day, the pilot is the captain of the ship, so right. he... He can override everything. Interesting. So I was like, you're the captain. So he's like, and I want you to pre-board. So uh, me and the other uh, agent, uh, the Greek agent, yeah. we uh, we bring in our 
prisoner, the, the Greek agent is sitting by the window, the bad guy's sitting in the middle seat, and I'm sitting on the aisle seat. So there's three Middle Eastern looking guys oh my God. on the first row of coach, elbow to elbow, cause, and the, pla- the rest of the plane's completely empty. Right. And then they allow the passengers to come on. And, you know, as they're coming on, this you know, is hilarious. they're, they, is this a Southwest flight by any chance? No. Oh, cause that would be even funnier. Cause it's pick your own seat. So like, it's no, like these it three, <laughs> these three want to sit right here. Yeah, <laughs> like, no. So okay. it was it. And then as they were coming on, you know, then you could see, uh, like for me, I could see the reaction on their face as soon as they get it. Right. You know, as soon as they get a glimpse like, of us. Oh, hell no. And you know, they yeah. would start to freak out <laughs> and then, you know, so then the plane boarded. And you know when somebody's like staring at you, you can you can yeah. feel it and sense it. And I'm like, I know they like the there were like probably 50, 60 passengers on this flight that can hold 150 yeah. or more, and they're just staring at us. And you know you can hear the whispering and everything. Right. And then you, I, the first thing I hear is the call button for the flight attendant. <laughs> <laughs> and then the flight attendant comes in, and you hear this very fast, uh, you know, stressed. Yeah. Uh, uh, conversation and then you know i hear you know the passenger go forget this and a couple they got up and they walked off the plane and the flight attendant's looking at me and i'm like you know I i'm can't sorry say anything i can't say anything i can't you know identify myself disclose right. who i who i am and then like you hear bing bing no bing. way like four or more people just got up and got off the plane so the flight attendant runs uh, to the captain and tells the captain. So the captain runs up, you know, runs down the, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the jetway, the jetway yeah. exactly, and catches up to them and talks to them and convinces them to come back. And really? Now he's so, the captain. So he, he, can, he probably said, "Oh, hey, he listen. did. He did. He definitely disclosed who we were to right. them, and he can. He's the captain. Right. So they come back and they're looking and they're like, at me like, <laughs> give really? Me a, are you a fist bump? Little. <laughs> well, no. At first, oh, they're, they're like, like, are you really? Right. <laughs> so I'm like, yes, yes. Just get on. Can we please, you know, go? And so they finally you, got. So on. you did have to like, yes, like, yes, just, yeah, yeah, I did. You know, I mean, because I could, I could yeah. sense their fear and yeah, you know, and, and the situation they're in. So they, you know, they got on and we finally took off, you know, and it was, a, it was from New York all the way to Phoenix. So a long wow. flight, you know, there'd be times like either me or, you know, my partner would have to get up to go to the, you know, restroom. And then the, if there was anybody in front of us, they're like, no, 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 go ahead. You go first. Right. <laughs> you know, and uh, so that's probably the most that's interesting really cool. thing that on a commercial flight yeah. that's happened to me. When you're on a flight like that, you have to stay awake too, right? Yes. That's easier said than done that in is some it. cases right like <laughs> i have not been awake for a takeoff or landing i couldn't even tell you yeah. 20 years i'm not even kidding yeah. i fall asleep even if i want to be awake i can't help it i'm asleep since now that i'm retired i can be honest i didn't stay awake all the time yeah <laughs> it's, it's hard uh, right it, it really is yeah so you're not allowed to sleep and you're not allowed to to drink on on airplanes wow and uh, uh that's a great story um <laughs> How many, is it weird having a job where, you know, if you're an athlete, you do something good, you hear 50,000 people cheering for you or whatever, your job's kind of like a thankless job, right? Because you can't really publicize the things you're doing unless it does happen to end up in the news for whatever reason. But for the most part, you have to cheer like internally just with your squad, right? Absolutely. I mean, for us, it's, you know, the recognition is... Uh, is internal for the most part, right? But we have a we have a saying in the FBI, 
successes belong to the organization. So if we're successful, it's not us individually or as a team. It's right. the FBI or the organization that's truly successful because of you know the incredible employees that we have and and the dedication to our mission and uh, and and service. Uh, it's only the failures that belong to us. Right. So you know, recognition isn't really as as important to us as uh, you know as an athlete or anything like that. But you know, there is that internal recognition uh, and you know the sense of you know impact. You know, when you do something, you know that really is is truly impactful to your community. You know, as a as a team or as a group, you really do uh, uh, get a lot out of that. What was your proudest moment as an FBI agent? Yeah, honestly, can you not I, say? No, no, no. I, I, it's it's hard to, you know, to to pick one. There's just so many. It's, it's such top an, three. Is there a top three? Oh yeah. So uh, of course, well, number one was uh, being selected to join the FBI. To me, mm. that is one of the most pr proudest professional moments. As again, as I mentioned to you, uh, I was an immigrant. My family and I were very fortunate that we were able to escape the civil war in Lebanon and make the long journey to the United States. So when I came here at 12, I actually couldn't speak a word of English. Naturalized at 17, enlisted in the U.S. military at 18, and had been serving my country really until wow. June 30th of, of last year. But early on, people told me, you know, you'll never be able to join the FBI. You're an immigrant, you're from Lebanon, you know, you're a terrorist, right. they're never going to take you. So uh, proving them all wrong and having the, you know, the opportunity to join the greatest organization and the premier agency in the world, for me, that is probably my, you know, uh, I would say my biggest professional accomplishment and the thing that I'm most yeah. proud of in the FBI. You know, of course, you know, having the opportunity to work some of the most incredible cases, you know, for example, I was part of the 9-11 investigative team I was in country in Jordan when the senior uh, American diplomat was killed by Abu Musab al-Zarqawi and was able to participate and play a, a small role in that investigation, um, you know, serving multiple tours in Iraq and working with some of the most uh, impressive uh, elite uh, soldiers. You know, so I had the, you know, the opportunity to work with some tier one, as they're called, guys uh, in the Army and Navy. Having served in you know Afghanistan, professionally speaking, being selected to interrogate Saddam Hussein is probably my biggest professional. Uh, you actually interrogated him for seven months. Wow! So that, that's like that's, every day for seven months. Every day for seven months. How many hours a day? Uh, on average, between five to seven hours. Well, I would spend five to seven hours with him every every day. I didn't necessarily interrogate him every day. But I spent five to seven hours talking to him, interacting with him every single day to develop that rapport. And he's cooperative. At first, no, not at all. So How long did it take to break down the, those walls? About two months. Really? That yeah. still seems pretty quick. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what getting, was getting the uh, opportunity to uh, author his prosecutive report, which was. Uh, what was used to uh, prosecute and convict Saddam for genocide, war crimes, and crimes against humanity. Uh, and then, of course, uh, you know, having the privilege of uh, leading uh, the Miami field office. So I was the special agent in charge of the 
FBI Miami field office, which was responsible for all of South Florida, the Caribbean, uh, Central and South America, and with over 900 employees assigned, uh, you know, to that office. So getting an opportunity to lead, you know, some of the yeah. uh, best men and women in the world, you know, and uh, you know, in in the service of our country. That's you know. So I'm like I, I was that's telling amazing. you at the beginning. You know, Are you going to write a book? I am writing a book. I'm writing a book on the interrogation of Saddam. Yeah, that's not, fascinating. Not my career, and or my not my life. How does it work? Are you allowed to talk about whatever you want now that you're retired, or there's still rules, or are there unwritten rules, kind of thing? No, there's still there are rules. <laughs> They're still, written, bold print. Yes. So, uh, as it pertains to Saddam, you know, a lot of the information that we had uh, collected and obtained from him were declassified initially for the uh, WMD report that was prepared by the Iraqi Survey Group. Uh, for for Congress, and then the remainder was declassified for his prosecution. So I didn't really have to worry about you know the classification issues that you know something or some of the information was secret or anything like that. That had already been uh, addressed, uh, and again, not for my benefit, but for the benefit of the report and the prosecution. Uh, when you retire, uh, you have to propose to the FBI. You know what your book's going to be about, and, really? and all of that. Yeah. So I presented them with my book proposal. They they approved it. So and they assume they know like that's coming because it makes it's a logical step, right? You're going to now you've uh, you've retired from that, but you're going to have a new career, public speaking, writing a book, that kind of stuff. Absolutely. So I presented them with the with my book proposal. They reviewed it. Uh, they approved it. Uh, so I signed with uh, Simon and Schuster, uh, a publishing company out of the big uh, boys. Yeah, yeah. Congrats. And uh, but again, once the book is written, uh, before the book can be published, it has to go back to the FBI and go through what's called a pre-publication review. Yep. Uh, and then once the bureau has cleared it, uh, then uh, then uh, Simon and Schuster will be able to uh, That's release. That's really it. exciting. I'm very excited. And not to give away what's going to be in the book, but like, so how, when you're when you are interrogating someone like that, does comedy come? Is it is it is there a tactic? Like, are there ever days where you guys are laughing? Like you're because you're trying to build that rapport. So you like, what are the tactics that you use? Oh, uh, to... Absolutely. So Saddam's interrogation is is. Very different and unique from you know the typical uh, law enforcement uh, interrogations or interviews that I think most people are familiar. You know what you see in movies or on yep. TV or even in reality shows like Forty Eight Hours and, and things like yeah. that. You know those are short durations in in, in duration, right? So typically, uh, you know you're doing a couple of hours at most or you know something like that. So that approach is very different than when you're spending you know nearly a year with someone. And the challenges that you face, and then the tactics are somewhat, uh, you know, have to be uh, adopted, you know, to that kind of situation. But uh, the the approach that I use, and the one that, uh, you know, that of course is commonly used in the FBI, and uh, and really the most effective, in my opinion, is called rapport based. That's where I develop a rapport. It's very similar to what you do. You know, you kind sure. of get to know the person you're interviewing, you're talking to kind of find out what they value in life, what really matters to them and yep. things like that. Find something that you have in common with that can kind of help, especially at the beginning, bridge that. So comedy can be really yeah. Im important and, 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 and valuable. And, uh, and people talk to people that they have something in common with 
or they like, yeah. or they find you know, uh, you know, funny or you know, appealing or something like that. Nobody likes to talk to a jerk, or right? Arrogant or and uh, what is his motivation to even talk to you? That's probably the biggest thing, right? Because he's uh, at that point, he's already captured and he's he's doomed, right? So, like, what when, what is the motivation to get him to even say anything? So, not only uh, was he captured. Uh, but he also saw the United States as his enemy, right. and still saw, you know, that especially at the beginning, you know, the interview as, uh, you know, as part of the war. He told me that, Correct. right? This is part of the war, and right. cooperating with you would be cooperating with with my enemy. So really, initially, he had no motivation uh, and really no reason to cooperate. And I will tell you, when I was first assigned. Uh, to interrogate him, the you know the FBI was under the assumption and uh, that he he wouldn't cooperate. Uh, he had no reason to. So right. you know, they told me, you know, don't uh, even waste your time, right? Well, like, they didn't say don't waste your time, but uh, again, kind of to set you know expectations, he's not going to talk to you, you know, and 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 told me really demonstrate how effective the FBI is in working well with, you know, the other components of the U.S. government, you know, and, and things like that. So we could really strengthen our partnerships and, yeah. and be effective as, uh, as a team. That's what they told me. They wanted me to kind of demonstrate to our counterparts, the U.S. military, the CIA, and, and others. They're like, he's not going to talk to you. He's got no reason to. So, you know, uh, you know, don't worry. Of course, you know, that, you know, that was not acceptable yeah. to me. And, uh, you know, I was really focused on... And so it took you two months to kind of like wear him down or get him to open up to you. Could you have pulled the plug? Like, was it up to you? Like where you could have said after five weeks and said, this guy's just not going to talk. And then that would have been the end of it. Or did they pressure you all, or the flip side? Did they pressure you and go like, George, you're wasting your time. This guy's never going to talk to you. Uh, no, they, I was never under any pressure. Okay. Right. But since he was still talking or at least ex uh, willing to, to talk. Right. Uh, you know, I always uh, saw that the, uh, that there's opportunity. He's handcuffed when you're talking to him. No, 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 not at all. Really? Yeah. It's like this, like a, this close to him, like across from a table. Uh, and not only across from the table, I would go into his cell, sit in his cell with him. There was a we had a little. Uh, and the cell's tiny, right? Like a very like tiny. We, yeah. Yeah, very tiny. Uh, there was a uh, a lawn chair, uh, and and he had a cot. Uh, so he would sit on the cot. I would sit on the, uh, you know, the plastic chair yeah. in his cell. You know, initially we it was, uh, you know, it was, uh, the duration would be very short. And then over time, as we developed that rapport, I started to spend more and more time with him, especially in the cell. We started to have coffee together in the mornings. You know, he had uh, exercise time. I would go out sometimes with him on his exercise time. And he had his own little uh, exercise yard. And I would spend time with him there. And then, of course, in the interrogation room and, and things like that. So the environments, you know, uh, varied, but it was, yes, it was, you know, this close. And no, he was never handcuffed. Does he have, like, TV in his cell or no. anything? Nothing. Nothing. So it's, they they, uh, they make it mis as miserable as possible, but humane, I guess, right? It was very humane, you know. Uh, but no, he, he did not have, uh, and we controlled that aspect, right? We controlled his environment. Sleeping and, on a mattress? Sleeping on a on a uh, on a mattress, right? So he had a cot, and then he had some back issues. So we had a little plywood on the on the on the cot to give him a little 
uh, firmness, and then he had a mattress. Gets to choose any of the things he eats, or he just eat what we give you? So he ate what we gave him, but it was uh, uh, a fit within his uh, religious belief. Yeah. Uh, and he was the only prisoner that got uh, hot meals throughout the day. Really? Yeah. The others would get, uh, you know, what was uh, what are called? Or, uh... Uh, no, the MREs, meals ready to eat, what the U.S. soldiers okay, are given. Sure. So they would get, I think, either one or two of those and then one hot meal. But he got, you know, three hot meals. Hmm. He actually ate better than uh, yeah. uh, than us and or the soldiers sometimes. And what was uh, that's, that's fascinating. Was he um, towards the end of of you talking to him? Did he consider you like a friend at that point? Absolutely. Uh, he told me I got to know him better than his uh, his own two sons because I spent more time one on one with him than his two sons uh, uh, ever Whoa. did. Did he regret anything? No, no regret. No really? Yeah. Wow, that's crazy. Uh, so you've talked to killers, multiple killers. Yes. You've also probably talked to people who commit financial crimes. Or no? Yes. You're but... more on killer highway? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, I spent the majority of my uh, career, especially as a special agent or as an investigator working international terrorism, so counterterrorism. So the, most of my investigative work, interrogations and uh, things like that uh, were in the counterterrorism uh, division mm -hmm. and uh, operations. So working you know, predominantly against uh, Al-Qaeda and then later on against uh, ISIS. So that was really the, the focus of uh, my uh, you know my FBI career now as a police officer I was a detective for a number of years mm. and within uh, as a detective I was assigned to crimes against persons so I interviewed a lot of uh, armed robbery uh, uh, murder attempted murder you know those kinds really? of uh, uh, suspects yeah um, did you enjoy FBI more than being a, a cop or is it hard to compare it like that or is it equal it it's different. Right. So, you know, if you were to ask me which was funner, I would say being a police officer was funner, which was more impactful, which was, uh, you know, absolutely, you know, uh, incredible privilege and, you know, those kinds of things. I would say the, you know, the, the FBI. Right. Um, you know, as a, as a police officer, you know, you, you have a lot more opportunity to in, engage the public. You know, you're, you're out doing frontline enforcement. You're responding to calls, you know, as a detective. You know, especially a robbery detective, you know, you're out all the time and you're arresting a lot of people. As a FBI agent assigned to counterterrorism, you know, every time I or my team arrested a, a terrorist, that is really bad for our, our country because that right. means there's a there was a threat against our, our community, our country, mm. our society. You know, so as a cop, I used to have a saying, an arrest a day keeps the sergeant away. Yeah. Right? As, a, as an FBI agent, you don't want that kind of volume because that means our country is under such a you know incredible threat. So, um, you know, different. As far as nine eleven goes, I don't know if you can even answer this, but uh, is it what it just looks like? Is, is is as far as what happened, or is it deeper, way deeper than that? Because I have so many friends that have so many theories on nine eleven. I will tell you, you know, the FBI and really the entire intelligence community, we've investigated that 
completely, thoroughly turned every rock, followed every lead. You know, it was a horrible, horrible uh, event mm -hmm. and one that our country will, you know, will always not only remember but kind of uh, uh, definitely reflect. changed the the how we do so many things. We did exactly, and then you know the impact on it. But it was an it's, it was an Al Qaeda operation. Uh, masterminded by uh, the Al Qaeda leaders, right? The hijackers are well known. The the planning, their movement, their activities, uh, everything is is well known, well documented, well investigated. There's really nothing that remains that has not been identified or mm. or or uh, determined. So you know, the bad guys, uh, you know, un unfortunately, the ones that are uh, getmo or you know awaiting their you know, their day in, in court and, you know, for, for justice to be served. How do we stop school shootings? Uh, can we? I don't know if we can stop, uh, whether it's school shootings or people from being crazy is yes. hard to stop. Right. You know, so I feel like if, if we had it like airports, like in terms of security, I mean, I guess you don't want to do that to kids. Is that the issue? But I mean, that's it's like so. It's it, that's the you know that's the issue. So you know we you know we really pride ourselves and we value being an open democratic society that enjoys our freedoms and liberties and things like that. So you know you have to find that balance between you know uh, civil liberties and and freedom and and security. And at what point you know do you go one way or or the the other? Right. So, you know, there is a, uh, you know, I don't think as a society or as a country, we really devote enough effort, focus and support for mental health issues. And and there are a lot of people that have mental health problems that go unaddressed and and uh, shootings. Uh, unfortunately, it, for that small number becomes, you know, their outlet or, or their, uh, uh, you know, the path that they choose. You know, the, uh, their ability to obtain weapons is, is uh, uh, you know, is ridiculous in, right. in, in my mind. So uh, I think it has to, requ it requires a, a change of mindset and, and, you know, the resources that are available. Again, if we just focus on hardening the schools, that's not really addressing the problem. It's just right. changing the problem. Or, or And then, you know, then the focus will go somewhere else. Right. Then it's going to be malls or restaurants. And then, you know, so what do we do? We can't, you know, we're going to constantly move to harden, you know, all of these locations versus really addressing, you know, the, the core problem, which is, you know, mental health for a lot of these folks. And then, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the ability to, uh, you know, for those that should not have weapons, easily obtain weapons. George, I, we threw this together so last minute. I could sit here with you for three hours, and sadly, there's another show coming in here pretty soon. George, do you, you have any questions? Yes, I do. Go. Uh, so one of my biggest questions after hearing everything you've said is compared to a person like Saddam Hussein who committed mass genocide atrocities, how um, different is a person like that compared to like a serial killer? And were you able to identify mm. differences, although it's two different forms, one's leading men to do deeds, the other is committing them? Um, I wanted to know. 
So, you know, Saddam was diagnosed as a psychopath. Um, however, I would tell you, you know, Saddam was extremely intelligent, a lot more intelligent than we, we gave him credit for. So what was unique about Saddam, Saddam knew how to use violence for, for a goal or purpose. You know, so if you look at, for example, his oldest son, his oldest son is what I would, what I would say is one of the most evil men in, the, in history, right, mm -hmm. uh, Uday. And then he was truly a serial killer, serial rapist, just a horrible, horrible human being. And the difference between Saddam and him was Saddam, you know, w didn't seek out violence, but was prepared to use it to to achieve his his goal or purpose. He told me, you know, he preferred to, you know, to be able to manipulate people and doing what he wanted. But if if that didn't work, you know, he was very prepared to use violence. His son, you know, didn't have that differentiation he just was a violent violent horrible human being when you talk about serial killers you know they're doing it for a reason that that's internal saddam's violence was to all you know to achieve power and then to attain power now he was paranoid and all of those kinds of things but it was in a sense different so it wasn't you it's hard to compare him against like a you know ted bundy or you know uh, you know these historical you know, serial killers that are responsible for, you know, a number of, uh, you know, horrible killings. For sure. And out of those two, which one are you personally more afraid of? Uh, definitely, uh, you know, someone like, what, like Saddam. And, you know, again, because, you know, the, the others, you know, like a Ted Bundy or, uh, you know, uh, you know, the other serial killers, uh, you know, the, uh, you know the the strangler in L.A. and all of that. Yep. You know, I'm kind of drawing a blank. Hillside strangler, exactly. Or, yeah, yeah, those. Yeah. You know, they were motivated. Uh, you know, based on you know something internal with them. Uh, you know, I remember when I went to homicide school. You know, years and years ago, and I was told, you know, four percent of our society is born, you know, as psychopaths. That's and crazy. It, and so that's how you you know uh, you know some of these. That's just within them, but they were. You know, they they would pick their victims based on you know certain things, and it was you know victims of opportunity or you know, victims that they could uh, uh, kill in a sense because they could dominate. You know, where someone like Saddam, who was very strategic and you know very deliberate, you know, you look at his losses or like a Hitler or something like that or a Stalin. You know, some of these you know uh, brutal dictators. You know, you're talking thousands if not millions of lives yeah right so you know their their impact on uh, on on you know civilization is at a completely different Th that scares me a lot more than a, uh again not to to minimize you know the ted bundy sure. the hillside strangler or Definitely. ramirez and you know and everything like that but uh, they're on a different level it's funny you you just said you know four percent is uh psych born a psychopath yeah. i just recently had my blood work done uh, a couple of months ago, and and a gene test, a DNA test. And yesterday on the show, we went over my DNA results. I just had a complete stranger yesterday that I'd had maybe a five-minute conversation with nail my exact personality just off the gene test. She's right. literally like, you have an addictive personality. I'm like, yep. She's like, you have a quick temper. Uh, yep. She's <laughs> like, you're a perfectionist. Yep. I could not believe that just off of that, 
Wow. They're able to pinpoint that. Changed my whole perspective. Uh, yeah, for sure. George, listen, I could sit here with you literally for three hours today. Are you in Vegas a lot? Are you here often? I am. So I think I'm coming back in June. And then, of course, uh, in August, I'm, I'm competing in the world championships. So I'll be back in, in August as, as well, if not you know, sooner. Can you come back on here in June? Absolutely. That's verbally binding, George. <laughs> Absolutely. Billy, you get a gold star. To, Billy says no. <laughs> Billy says no. I can't have the watch. I can't have George more than once. This guy, he's, <laughs> contract's over. Uh, speaking of over, George, the show's over. Both Georges. Dude, that was really good.